This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 9th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. It's worth remembering and repeating the tax bill did not repeal Obamacare. It may have zeroed out the individual mandate, but a massive share of the Affordable Care Act remains in place, and the act still hands a huge amount of power to the Department for Health and Human Services. Sal Nuzzo is Vice President for Policy at the James Madison Institute. We spoke at the Cato Institute's State Health Policy Summit last month. The individual mandate has been zeroed out in the tax bill. People have equated that with repeal, which is not quite the same thing. It's still on the books, but the penalty associated with not buying uh, government-approved health insurance is zero, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, people have tried to uh, make arguments about what that actually means, what does it actually mean in your view? And, and what are some of the, the impacts that people aren't talking about that, that you see on the horizon? Sure. And I, and I think it's important to look at this historically as kind of the genesis of how this all came about. And I think that that will kind of give some context to what it means going forward. So if you hearken back all the way to the campaign between uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, when they ran in the primaries, they were both running on a health care reform platform. And Hillary Clinton had advocated for an individual mandate. And, and uh, Barack Obama had said, no, you can do health care reform and not have to mandate that individuals uh, get coverage. Well, he flipped uh, come uh, tw- uh, 2008. And in his uh, kind of push for health care reform in 2009, uh, it became an essential part of passing a bill that would kind of tweak health insurance in the way that he had wanted to. And so um, the individual mandate was only designed to work in the market of about 15% of folks who get their coverage outside of uh, employer-based markets. Because you can't. It's hard to argue that you've reduced the number of uninsured without making sure that people who would not who would just go without health insurance are at least penalized for not doing so. Correct. And and a couple of the nuances in terms of how they structured it to make it both politically palatable and and work within the budget constraints at the time is they set the original penalty very, very low. And so it was not operating as an appropriate uh, disincentive to going without coverage. And so uh, the coverage numbers really didn't begin to, to boost under the ACA's individual mandate until about year three or four. Uh, and that's when the penalty uh, rose. However, before that, in 2012, uh, in the very first Supreme Court case uh, that challenged the legality of the ACA, it was King v. Uh, NFIB v. Sibelius. Uh, in that case, if you'll remember, um, prior to uh, the, the case, the administration in passing the bill had continually pushed this notion that the individual mandate was not a tax. It was a penalty. It was a fee. It was anything but a tax. Now, when they had to argue the case before the Supreme Court, in order to win it, they had to completely go 180 on their argument and say, no, this is in fact a tax. It is uh, it is within the context of the Congress's taxing powers to implement and to execute, and therefore it's, it's constitutional and legal. And the Supreme Court bought that 
argument and and the right uh, went uh, relatively ballistic at John Roberts because he was perceived to be the swing vote uh, on that uh, part of the ruling. So in 2012, when the court rules that uh, it is in fact a tax, they set in place the path by which that individual mandate could then be repealed five, six years later. In a tax bill. In a tax bill. And it's kind of the, 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 the most delicious of ironies that the legal gymnastics used by the Supreme Court to justify the individual mandate as within the power of the Congress to implement is the very same method used to completely zero it out. And so um, what does that mean? What does it mean moving forward, both positive and negative? Um, I think what you're going to begin to see is you're going to begin to see um, insurance companies and, and a variety of different mechanisms come into play to begin to offer consumers some additional choice in the individual market. Um, no longer are you going to be fined or taxed for having insurance that doesn't comply with the Obamacare standards or not having insurance at all. So that's a good thing. Uh, on the kind of on the kind of side effect is I think people are couching this far more of a Obamacare is repealed than it actually is. The individual mandate was, in fact, only one part of a series of reforms to the insurance market that hit both the individual side and the employer side. And so the long-term effects are going to be slightly minimized by the fact that only about 15% of the, of the population gets their insurance coverage in the individual market. Okay. And, and another element here that we were talking about before we started recording is that uh, the Affordable Care Act was written in such a way that it hands an enormous amount of discretion to uh, administrative agencies. The secretary shall, yep. the secretary may. I think you said it was mentioned more than a thousand times. Yeah, it's it's well more than a thousand. I think the count is something like 1,700 maybe uh, times in the original ACA bill, uh, the words the secretary shall or the secretary may uh, appear. And that gives an enormous amount of uh, of authority, of, of power to the administration and to the Department of Health and Human Services in executing specific elements of, of how, this, uh, how this law is carried out. And that's going to go into things along the lines of, I mean, we just saw not too long ago, uh, the Trump HHS uh, issued guidelines regarding association health plans and the ability for associations to partner across state lines to do uh, uh, kind of pooling of insurance plans. And that's going to bring some positive results to individuals that are small businesses, can't afford coverage on the main uh, employer-based market. And so you're going to see some some good come out of there. However, the employer mandate still remains. Uh, if you are an employer with 50 or more uh, full-time equivalent employees, and uh, you and, and you are off, you are required to offer a an Obamacare compliant uh, insurance uh, plan to your employees, and so that hasn't gone away. Uh, there are other other elements of uh, the law that um, kind of restrained the amount of uh, flexibility that insurance plans can offer. Those are still in place. And so 
Does it move us in the right direction? Uh, yes, but I don't necessarily think that it moves us as far in that direction as as folks are are wanting uh, wanting us to be. Uh, one troubling aspect of of that that it remains the Affordable Care Act. In the short run, it seems like oh, it's a very good thing. Uh, a new administration can make a bunch of changes to the availability of. Uh, or at least the, the degrees of freedom that insurance companies have to offer different kinds of coverage. But if the knowledge, if the insurance companies maintain the knowledge that, well, this could go away in three years, in four years, um, it, that has to change their calculus when it comes to trying to develop markets for uh, coverage that, that would be uh, stable over the long term. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's an, that's an important point that's lost on a lot of individuals that are analyzing this is that what can be executed by one administration and then uh, kind of repealed regu- in, in the regulatory uh, feature by another administration can be put right back by a future administration. And so um, anything that the Trump HHS does to help um, kind of smooth out a lot of what's going on in insurance markets can be completely undone should a uh, should a Democrat uh, assume the presidency in in 2020 or in 2024 or in 2028. I mean, everything that this administration is doing uh, with a with the pen and the phone can be undone with the pen and the phone in the, in the next administration. And so that's something that should be very concerning to folks who who are who value um, kind of separation of powers, who value the concepts of federalism, who value free markets and a limited government. So Michael Cannon argues that the, the good one of the one of the positive effects of getting rid of the individual mandate is that it will compel uh, a sort of reckoning with the cost of providing coverage and that people will actually be confronted with the full cost of the mandated benefits that the Affordable Care Act creates. Yeah, and I would, uh, it, it's, I don't think I would ever want to disagree with anything Michael Cannon projects or predicts on on uh, the policies in the Affordable Care Act or its repeal. And so I think he's got a lot of, of good thoughts and predictions there in that as the mandate goes away, um, and individuals are beginning to look at coverage for what they need or what they want at that time. Uh, meaning, if you're, you know, in your fifties and you own a business and you're a sole proprietor, you don't necessarily need coverage that's for maternity or for, you know, whatever, you know, kind of extraneous things are, are out there that you're not looking for. And so, as those folks come out of the exchanges, and as they even in some cases come out of the employer-based market, if the coverage offerings in the individual markets are better, you're going to find the folks that are left in the exchanges and the folks that are left in the employer-based markets are going to provide a very different actuarial pool. And those costs are going to be far more visible moving forward. Sal Nuzzo is Vice President for Policy at the James Madison Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 